If you've driven by a cemetery or a funeral home at any point in your life, you probably have seen the very distinctive oval-shaped Dignity logo. It looks very generic. White lettering beneath a very generic-looking tree. But it's something that you see everywhere. What you might not realize is that Dignity is just one of many brands that exists under the umbrella of Service Corporation International, the largest provider of funeral services globally. The vision of Robert L. Waltrip. This company is really quite remarkable in the fact that it has capitalized over the last 50 years on Americans' need to plan. In many ways, Robert Waltrip is the classic American dream. He's taken a single funeral home and expanded it to more than 1,500 in the U.S., 3,700 worldwide. But how did he get there? What is SCI? And why, despite the fact that they bury one in nine Americans, have most of us never heard of it? I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb of the View. So I appreciate your patience. I did take last week off from the podcast, from social media, from just about everything. Um, Life somewhat came crashing in. For those of you out there who might work for the federal government, you know the fiscal year ends on June 30th. So things have been particularly busy on top of that. I did take a trip. I went to see my mother. Um, So I took a little, a couple of days off. I had a few private projects that I was working on, just an overwhelming number of things all at once. So I did take last week off. So I thank you for your indulgence on that. But I wanted to continue and do a follow-up. So I had concluded my episode on Jessica Mitford and the American Way of Death by talking about her rather scathing farewell letter posted the day following her death to Robert Waltrip. So you can't really drop something like that in without talking about SCI. And this is something I've honestly wanted to talk about for a while. Because this is, in many ways, how most of us experience funerals, death, cemeteries, all of these aspects, because it is such a large part of American life. And I did tease this a little bit because I actually showed the original sign to John... um, Ryudo's funeral home in Birmingham, Alabama, which is a family chain that is now owned by Dignity and is a perfect example of the SCI model. Um, I don't do anything by accident. And I went there not on purpose, but I happened to notice where it was. I happened to notice it was a Dignity funeral home. So I actually parked my car in the parking lot and I took a walk around to try to see if I could see some of the more noteworthy characteristics that really define an SCI property. And I noticed a few of them, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about how their business model works. But to start off with, SCI, Service Corporation International, despite being the world's largest funeral care provider, is a name that, unless you are familiar with the New York Stock Exchange, where it does trade under SCI, Um, As of the recording of this episode, their stock was valued at about $52.54 per share, which is interesting because it was trading at that same amount in the mid-1990s. There have been quite a few ups and downs, including some very expensive lawsuits and also quite a bit of trust busting from the Federal Trade Commission. It's a constant struggle to try to keep... SCI from becoming a monopoly in the funeral market. So they load and unload various acquisitions regularly. And unfortunately, that was one of the things I was disappointed at because I didn't get to look a lot at exactly what this means for those businesses. Um, In my guesstimation, it's probably not great. But often, in order to acquire new things, they are required by the FTC to actually unload a certain proportion of their business to keep them from completely saturating the market. You need to still have choices where there are funeral homes that you can go to. 
So a lot of my observations today are not necessarily things that I've read or researched. It's just more my observations based on the profile of the companies, based on a worryingly large amount of time that I spent on SCI's website, reading about them in various financial publications, things like that. So keep in mind that some of this is very subjective, like anything that you're going to hear that I report on, but I have tried to do my best research and make certain observations. Hopefully I don't get it too wrong because this is a big company and it's a modern company and I'm not looking to put anybody down. I think that SCI has a lot of issues. A lot of them are tied up with any form of capitalism. More so than that, though, I think that their system of mechanization can also lead to a breakdown in other aspects of quality. And when we get to some of the controversies surrounding SCI, I hope that it reflects that. But now we have to get in our time machine and go back to 1926, where Robert E. Waltrip, who is the father of Robert L., who was the main guru of SCI, he purchases a single funeral home, which is located at 1317 Heights Boulevard in the Houston Heights neighborhood of Houston. At the time, it is the only funeral home there. It is still owned by SCI, and it is, in many ways, their flagship location. If you drop yourself down on Google Earth, you can look at it. And again, it does not say SCI. Like There is no indicator that this is the OG funeral home, but this is. Many of the furnishings and original accoutrements of this funeral home now actually reside in the National Museum of Funeral History, which is also in Houston. I'll talk a little bit about that later. So Robert L. was actually born in 1929, three years after his father purchased the funeral home. They lived above it, which was the traditional way that many families that owned funeral homes lived in much of the 20th century. So he was raised, and he claims in many interviews that he always wanted to be a funeral director, that this was the only thing he ever wanted to do. And certainly growing up in that environment, he was in many ways being reared for it. When he was a junior at Rice University in Houston, which is not far from the Heights neighborhood, his father did die in 1951 at the age of 48. It's worth noting that the, it did start with his father. His grandfather was not in the business. His grandfather was actually a high school principal. So it's interesting that it's not necessarily a fully legacy business. It is, despite the fact that his father owned it for, you know, close to, you know, 20 years, doesn't mean that it was a multi-generational thing like many family funeral homes. So I think that that's one of the reasons that Robert L. Waltrip was able to kind of like force his own vision on it is the fact that he was not stuck in the long-standing tradition that many funeral parlors were in at the time. So he dropped out of school. He was helping his mother run the funeral home and he finished his degree taking night classes at the University of Houston. He will eventually start to expand. So the first big expansion starts in 1962 and this is generally when most people say that SCI starts, even though obviously he was in the business long before that. And what he does is he purchases another funeral home on Hyde Park Boulevard in Houston. And in addition, he expands, opening a new Waltrip funeral home in Spring Branch. And it's at this time, now owning three funeral homes, that he incorporates as SCI. He makes a lot of observations about business. Waltrip, uh, who is still alive, he is 92 today, is incredibly business savvy. I cannot say this enough. He looks at other industries and figures out how he can apply this to death care. So one of the things he looks at is things like McDonald's. So McDonald's, well, I think we can all agree McDonald's is not great food. McDonald's is, for the most part, very consistent food. If you order a Big Mac and French fries here in Atlanta, Georgia, and you order one in Santa Fe, New Mexico, or Chicago, Illinois, or Seattle, Washington, you're going to get essentially the same hamburger and the same French fries. And while it might not be haute cuisine, it is going to be consistent. 
And that is because there are such mechanization processes to how fast food restaurants work, their distribution. They have everything timed in terms of exactly how long things cook, the way that they cook, the methods. This is also the reason that if you see a fast food restaurant that has one of those really low health code ratings, run in the opposite direction. Because for the most part, most of them are so mechanized that they are always going to get decent health code because everything is written out for them. There is a very specific process. And this isn't to call SCI the McDonald's of the funeral world, but believe me, I am not the first one to make this comparison. So there are a couple of different business models. The first is, is that if you own multiple funeral homes, the most efficient way to cut expenses is not to fully equip all of your funeral homes. So rather than owning 10 funeral homes and employing 10 embalmers, one at each funeral home, and embalming maybe one or two bodies a week. What you do is you cluster. Clustering is a big part of what SCI does. So you have a central facility. It is usually one of the funeral homes that you own in the area, perhaps the largest, perhaps the newest and most up-to-date, where you have a team of embalmers, and they embalm for every funeral home that you own in the area. And then they ship the bodies out. The same way, instead of having a sixty dollars to $80,000 hearse at every funeral home, you have a group of hearses that are all at a central location, and they can do a funeral at 9 a.m. Once that funeral's over, they can do another funeral across town at noon, and you can get the most bang for your buck that way. By pooling resources, you're cutting down overhead. The second SCI tenant is that you are going to retain brand recognition. Now, anybody that's in business will tell you that this is important. In this case, if you have an established funeral home, and this is why I earlier brought up the case of the funeral home in Birmingham, which still has its original sign from the 1940s or 1950s, John Rideau. Now, John Rideau is long gone. I'm sure he's dead. Maybe he's not. I'm not really sure. I didn't do that much research into it. But that is a recognized name. When your grandfather died 10 years ago, you went in there. You remember how nice Mr. Riado was. You remember how he took care of your grandfather. You trust Mr. Riado. Now, what you don't know is that Mr. Riado no longer owns his funeral home. He has sold out to SCI. But it's still in the same location. It's still the same friendly face. He is now a paid employee of SCI. He is the face of the corporation. He is somebody you trust. What you don't realize is that his prices have probably roughly doubled, maybe even tripled, since the time that your grandfather was buried because he is now part of the SCI brand. Just like they cluster their resources, they also cluster prices. So there is an essential baseline price that you must pay, regardless of what you do. You want to have a funeral, you want to have your body taken care of, there is a baseline price. It's usually somewhere between $1,200 and $1,600, regardless of what you have done. This is the overhead cost. This is what keeps the lights on, supposedly. Now, that's not to say that local independent funeral homes don't do the same thing, but their costs are much, much lower. But this means that there are no budget-friendly funerals at SCI funeral homes. Now, recently, there has been a lot more of a push to get price out on the table where you can see an itemized price list. And I read a very interesting letter that was written by a woman who had her husband buried through an SCI funeral home, and she basically enumerates how the bill that she got did not break down the cost. They did not explain why some things were more expensive than others. There was no breakdown or explanation of why she had paid what she paid. And so she eventually filed a claim against them because she felt that she had been purposely duped. Now, Understanding this basic premise, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about pricing later. Let's take a step back and go back to the story of Robert L. Waltrip. From 1962 when he incorporates to 1974, so in 12 years, he goes from owning three funeral homes to owning 300. His model 
takes on like wildfire. And there are a couple of other things he does. I read um, an interesting interview with him. I think it was in Houstonia magazine where um, he talks about how in the original Waltrip funeral home, he actually invested in a computer. So this is a computer in the early 1960s. I think about how they were in awe of the computer in Apollo 13, and that was, you know, almost a decade later. Computers were massive. You know, they ran off punch cards, and I, they actually showed a picture of it. It took up an entire room on the second floor of the funeral home. But he already had this anticipation that financial records were going to be incredibly important, especially if you want to eventually be a publicly traded company. So he invested in this, and he talks about how they had to insulate the room because the computer was so loud that they actually had to put, you know, actual insulation sheets up, similar to the way that you would at a radio station. So never let it be said that Waltrip didn't know what he was doing. He had a vision, and that's one of the reasons that it takes off quite so fast. Now, because of these constant, you know, pulling and tuggings over monopoly and trust rights, SCI regularly loads and unloads properties. As far as I can tell, the most recent estimate is that they own about 1,500 funeral homes. 1,531 was the most recent number. It's probably a little bit more or less because, like I said, it's always in flux. And 471 cemeteries across the United States. That includes 45 states as well as D.C. and Puerto Rico. They own properties in. They also are in eight Canadian provinces. They... In the early 2000s, because of a lot of their battles with the FCC, they had widely in the 1990s. And if you read Jessica Mitford's The American Way of Death, which I covered last week, she talks a lot about their expansion into Great Britain, into Australia, and into France. They have actually backed off on a lot of their inroads into international business because I think that they found it in many ways not as profitable as they thought it was going to be. And it was also because in the EU and in other places, some of the restrictions that were being placed on them were really not great. I know in Australia in particular, where they owned something like 20% of the funeral business, there was a lot of pushback over Monopoly. But let's focus on the United States because it is a United States Cemetery podcast. Um, The 1,500 funeral homes, it's estimated to be about 10% of the overall funeral homes in the United States. Which may seem small, but this gives you an indication of how powerful their marketing, their presence in the community, and their recruitment is. Because despite the fact that they are vastly outnumbered by independent funeral homes, they are still handling one in nine funerals. So 10%, of the overall funeral home population, they are also handling 10% of the funerals. So that means that they are scoring almost every time and that they have a huge saturation. Now, this is also misleading because a large part of their model, which this is the model that Jessica Mitford was incredibly critical of, is that they are basing so much of their money on pre-need sales. Now, I read a very interesting article that was basically criticizing Americans for living too long, that increases in healthcare, that the longevity of Americans means that fewer Americans are actually dying. Um, And you can read some really depressing articles, like when we get like bad winters, where they're kind of like, oh, death rates are going to go up to they're going to be back at 8% where they used to be versus dropping down to something like 3%. Obviously, as baby boomers age, there is an astounding amount of money to be made in the funeral business. But SCI is not making most of their money off actual funerals. They are making them off pre-need funerals. Often, which tie you in, often which you cannot get out of, which is part of the problem. I read another account of a woman talking about the fact that she... Well, I should rather say her parents had purchased multiple community mausoleum spaces in the 1960s from an SCI corporation associate. 
She later wanted to unload these because she had no plans for them and was informed that they couldn't be resold because they were the old style and they were garden mausoleums, which means they're on the outside of the community mausoleum. Nobody wanted these. They wanted to be inside, which is climate controlled and air conditioned. So she said, well, I'm not going to use them. Can I donate them to a church or to a nursing home so that if they have, you know, elderly members who die and cannot afford a funeral, they can have them. And then she was said, well, she was basically given the runaround. SCI claims that you can't just transfer them, that she owned them, that she would have to, you know, resell them through SCI and that you couldn't have an unknown recipient, basically that they could determine who could and could not be buried in the mausoleum. All of which feels incredibly shady. Just at a first glance, I don't know this woman. I don't know what was said to her. But to circle back around. So I did a little bit more digging. And I spent a lot of time on SCI's website. So there are roughly 25,000 employees. Um, I've seen as many as 29,000 listed. But like I said... Their number fluctuates based on the amount of funeral homes that they own. Um, I've also seen as many as 1,900 locations listed. It varies quite a bit. It's difficult to see from year to year. Now, of the demographics of the people who work at their funeral homes, it is 51% female, 49% male, which is in keeping with overall trends in the funeral care industry. Of their employees, 63% are white, 22% are Hispanic or Latino, 9% are black, 4% are Asian, 3% fall under other races. This is where I'm going to make an observation before I go into the individual brands that they own. I feel like in particular, the black cemetery and black funeral home groups are one of the few that they really have not infiltrated a lot. Now, living in the South, I have seen and encountered a number of black funeral homes, and I talked about this um, in the episode that I did about black cemeteries, is the fact that they are often very separate. They are very insular to their community. My guess is that being headquartered in Houston, and Texas and California are definitely huge markets for SCI, They have decided to throw their towel into the ring more so with the Hispanic Latino community. And I also say this just based off the companies that they purchased. For example, Funeria del Angel, which is a huge group. They own um, Caballero Rivero, which started in Cuba and is based in southern Florida. I think that they have decided that that is their niche market. There is also certain inroads from what I can see in some of their larger cemeteries. So they own Rose Hill Memorial Park, which is in Whittier, California. It is the largest cemetery in the world. Um, You have probably seen it in the movies. Um, I remember it featured very prominently in True Blood. They filmed a bunch of scenes there. That was where like the super conservative anti-vampire camp was, (laughs) the Fellowship of the Sun. They filmed it um, Rose Hills. And if you go to places like that, you can see that there's definitely a leaning towards Asian Americans, which there's a large Asian American population in California. But overall, it seems like, and even just I searched within 50 miles of me in Atlanta and looked at the properties that are owned by SCI, and none of the black funeral homes are. I don't want to say none. I'm not saying that there are no black funerals handled by them. But the same way that Hubert Eaton and the Memorial Park movement, which is very much the basis for SCI and their modeling, was pretty racist. I like to think that SCI probably has its roots in a very waspy society. That is their target audience. And I think that the ethnic groups that they are targeting, um, particularly Hispanic and Latino, are ones that tend to be far more traditional and favor in-ground burials, which tend to drive up prices. And that's why they have gone out of their way to try to acquire more of these Hispanic and Latino companies to fall under the SCI brands. 
like I said, I have not seen a lot of literature to that effect. That is just my observation. Also, I would argue that in more established places, and I say this because I did the same thing. I put my old address in Rhode Island in. There are far less SCI practitioners in the Northeast than there are in the West, Midwest, and places like Florida. And I think it's because there are just so many older cemeteries. Not to say that there aren't still places that are operated by them, but there are far fewer. Objectively speaking, if you look at the numbers of 471 cemeteries in the United States, that's not a lot of cemeteries. But the cemeteries that they do own are absolutely enormous. Like I said, Rose Hills is the largest in the world. So they do in many ways push out the competition of older cemeteries. And I did have some people comment on this when I was publishing about, or when I was putting out information about Nancy Mitford two weeks ago that, you know, this is still an ongoing challenge is because they do saturate the market with sales. And I mentioned that when I was talking last week about the woman who worked for Catholic cemeteries and how they were doing like direct smear campaigns. When I talk a little bit more about some of the things that Robert Waltrip has done, he certainly does know how to market things. So, like I said, the Dignity Memorial is probably the most ubiquitous brand. This is both funeral homes and cemeteries. There is also the Premier Collection, which advertises, quote, white glove funeral service. Um, The Dignity Memorial brand has buried a lot of people, a lot of very famous people. The two most famous probably being Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis. The second probably being John Lennon. Um, But there are a number. Um... When Anna Nicole Smith's husband, who I can't remember his name now, isn't that terrible? The really old guy she married, RIP old guy. Um, But when he died, SCI actually did not one but two funerals, the one that she threw and the one that his son threw, because obviously they were estranged, Um, which, I mean, talk about weird, but also (laughs) talk about money rolling in. Um, They have the French-Canadian equivalent, which is Dignité, based out of Quebec, um, I already mentioned Funeraria del Angel, um, Cablero Rivero, Advantage, which <laughs> just like Advantage Rent-A-Car is their quote unquote budget brand. Uh, I mentioned Rose Hills. They also own National Cremation, which is the largest kind of wholesaler cremation. They own a 70% share. So basically the majority share of both the Neptune and Trident Society, which this made me very sad. Because Neptune Society, when it was originally founded, was meant to be sort of an antidote to the modern fuel industry. They offered affordable cremations, and obviously SCI has kind of screwed that up. But they also, by extension, own the Neptune Memorial Reef, which is off the coast of Florida, and the Neptune Columbarium, which is actually up in San Francisco. They also own LHT Consulting Group, which I had to do a little bit more digging, but the more you realize, this is for celebrity funerals. It's an event logistics firm. So essentially for high-profile funerals, they provide consulting to help you with handling the press, handling the logistics of things. Very convenient. For my listeners here in Atlanta, probably the biggest chain of funeral homes that you are going to be familiar with is H.M. Patterson & Son which they currently have three Metro Atlanta locations. They did have more. Some have since closed. Arlington Memorial Park up in Sandy Springs is owned by them. Massive, very traditional style memorial park up there. And uh, Georgia Memorial Park, which is part of the Winkenhofer, was the family that owned multiple locations um, up in sort of northwest Atlanta. Um, Georgia Memorial Park is in Smyrna, right on US-41. Those are probably the three biggest. There are certainly others if you go further out. Um, OTP, there are actually more OTP than ITP. Again, because Atlanta is a majority black city. And we have a very strong history of well-established black funeral parlors. So I think that uh, SCI has picked their battles. And they are going where they anticipate that they are going to be able to garner the highest sales. Now. If you go on their website, almost immediately you're assailed with a bunch of information. 
learn more about options. Now, I will say, because I do my best for you, that I did sign up for the, quote, buyer's guide to cemetery property. And boy, was I disappointed by this four-page glossy booklet, which means I will probably be getting promotional emails from SCI for the next 40 years of my life. There is a language, and I mentioned this last week in the Mitford episode, where they are trying to erase all negative connotations. Words like exclusivity, remembrance options, memorial site, resting place, family estates. And I actually saw this, I was up maybe two months ago, I drove through Georgia Memorial Park, and they have lots of signs advertising family estates which clearly is a very big catchphrase out West. When Waltrip dies, he is going to be buried in his family estate. These are essentially like little private gardens with hedges and gates, incredibly overpriced. They have benches and whatever type of grave you actually want there. But definitely promotes this idea. The similar way that, you know, mausoleums used to be sold, um, it does say that he would be buried in a mausoleum. He, it technically is not. It's a double crypt, similar to the double crypt that Martin Luther King and Credit Scott King are buried at, the King Center here in Atlanta, except Waltrips is far glossier. And uh, I would say probably not as tasteful as Dr. King's, uh, in my personal opinion. Waltrip himself has three kids, so um, he has Robert L. Jr., William, and Holly, and he was married to Claire Holly in 1952. She died in 2018, and I will say, poor woman, bless her heart, she died at 88, definitely benefited from massive, massive amounts of just shady, underhanded funeral deals, but if you were to ask me what the wife of a Texas funeral baron looked like she really could not be more perfect I actually laughed out loud when I saw the picture the one that they chose to put in her obituary I will definitely share it on social media I have to it's just the biggest hair like I I can't even it's almost too perfect but anyways, so his family estate is actually right outside of a memorial chapel that bears his name at Memorial Oaks Cemetery, and it obviously overlooks a lake, and I, I will show you the landscape. It definitely paints a very good picture, but there is an intrinsic idea that even after death, you can have anything that you want. Now, I am not going to sell Robert Waltrip short on this at all because this is something that has been sold since time immemorial. You know, you go back to medieval churches, the closer you were buried to the altar reflected your socioeconomic status. If you had an effigy in the church, it meant that you were a significant family. Even in the churchyard, the closer that you were buried to the church was a symbol of your prominence. So he certainly is not reinventing the wheel here. But I love that they continue to market this. And if you watch the quote-unquote essence video, I watched it. These were my notes. Surprisingly multicultural. Yes, they make it look like they are literally the UN of cemeteries. That they have more multicultural understanding and ability to handle funerals than anybody else in the world. The second thing I said feels a little grabby. There's a lot of like hugging and touching. And then my third note was it actually feels kind of thirsty um, because there's a weirdly like sexual tone to it that made me uncomfortable. Now, it's a two-minute video about essentially how we're all special and we are all unique and our burial place should reflect that. And there is only one thing that is never discussed. Not in specific terms. They might say expressions for every budget is as close as they come to the delicate question of money. There is no money listed anywhere. Even if you click on articles like how much does a mausoleum cost, they won't give you a number. Very clever. And this is because everything is scripted. It is carefully controlled whether or not people even talk to the press. It's a very hard topic, honestly, to do research on. My observation on their cemeteries, and I say this as somebody who has been to a number of them, 
they are putting the minimal amount of effort in. Often, if you have a cemetery that does not have an established building that they can use, they simply set up a trailer on the property. They do the bare minimum in terms of beautification, in terms of yard care, in terms of memorial maintenance. They are not dishing out copious amounts of money for this. They are relying on pre-need sales. They are doing the minimum. And again, this is all part of the clustering and mechanization. They have one grounds crew that probably takes care of multiple cemetery properties. They are putting less money into older cemeteries. So, for example, Georgia Memorial Park is probably mostly sold out at this point. The burial options there are limited. I would imagine they are putting far more money into Arlington Memorial Park up in Sandy Springs because it still has a lot of land to be developed. They were advertising 0% interest for 60 months on cremation and cemetery property. Um, I did not jump. I did not purchase anything. Um, You'd be proud of me. I know we're all in quarantine and everybody has Amazon fever, but uh, I was able to resist the, the temptation. Now, progressing forward, throughout the 1980s, really, SCI just explodes to epic proportions. And by the 1990s, this is when Jessica Mitford gets involved. And she starts, I don't want to say an actual campaign against them, but she definitely starts to reveal where some of the holes are. And she is certainly not the only one. So for instance, the amount of profit that Waltrip himself is making definitely comes under scrutiny. Now, SCI is an incredibly, incredibly profitable company. Waltrip himself said, quote, people who don't buy our stock just don't like money. Damn, that's a bold statement, Bob. Their core values of respect, integrity, service, excellent, and enduring relationships, i.e. come back and bury another, really don't reflect the fact that their profit margins heavily, heavily favor. So they passed the billion-dollar profit mark in 1995, and it continued to grow from there. Um, It certainly is something that many financial wizards were tracking. Even if most general Americans have never heard of SCI in the financial realm, people are aware of it because it was having really impressive profit margins despite the fact that death rates were dropping. So the interesting thing is, is that if you look at Waltrip and the amount of money he is making, estimates range that he was making anywhere between 30 and 50% more than he should have been, which is crazy. It's really nuts when you look at his profit. So the profit margin for individual funerals is estimated to be at about 25.3%. So... An independent funeral home might charge maybe forty two hundred for a funeral. That same funeral in the Houston area would be between eight and fourteen thousand dollars. The markup on individual things, and this is often when SCI rebuts arguments against them. They'll be like, "Well, you just picked one coffin and said that you know we gave it a two thousand percent markup in price, and you don't understand that it's all part of the centralized cost." So, for example, you know, they might argue, like, why is there a $725 transfer fee for the body when it literally was prepared at a funeral home inside a cemetery? You're transporting it from the funeral home down the hill to the cemetery. Why are you charging me $725 for that? They'll claim it's a flat fee, and that helps to pay for car maintenance and upkeep and all of those things. And it's, it's very worrying because nobody is questioning these things. Or the very small percentage of people who are don't often get like real answers, I guess would be the best part to say. Like there's not a clear accounting in many of these things. And also like when I get to some of the controversy, you'll see that they are charging for things like say refrigeration that often do not occur. And so the question is, is like, all right, why am I paying a $425 refrigeration fee when that didn't actually happen? It's really, really interesting. Um, 
So let's see. So fair pay, considering the size and performance of the company, would be $49,700 for a executive. This was in 1995, so these numbers are obviously a little outdated. Now, if you were to look at the actual amount that Waltrip was paid that same year, he was making $4,321,000. Now, granted, they are not taking into account a lot of things like stock options. And the fact is, almost every CEO is overcompensated because they own a percentage of the company that is also part of their assets. But Robert Waltrip seems to be the greatest abuser of this in many, many ways. So let's take a swing for a second and uh, talk a little bit more about some of those other things. So Robert Waltrip, he is a very enthusiastic aviator. He owned his own golf stream, which he frequently lends out to very famous people. Um, I'll talk about one of them in just a second. And he is passionately involved in a lot of different things. So you will recall he dropped out of Rice University. So he donated the money to build the indoor training facility, which now bears his name at Rice University. In 1987, he founded the Lone Star Flight Museum. He has a fascination particularly with World War II era airplanes. As I said, has his pilot's license, had his own golf stream. Then in 1992... He founds in Houston the 30,000-foot National Museum of Funeral History. And you will recall in last week's episode when I talked about Nancy Mitford, she mentions visiting this because she had tried very hard to get a meeting with Waltrip, traveled to Houston, and essentially his people blew her off, and she never got to meet him in person. But she did tour the museum, which she thought was excellent. The museum of which, you know, Waltrip is still, you know, considered the founder and, you know, emeritus director of the board, I think is significant. He does have some really cool stuff there, including, as I already mentioned, the original artifacts from his father's funeral home in the Heights. There are 16 permanent exhibits. There is the George Bush Sr. Memorial Exhibit, History of Cremation, Thanks for the Memories, which is sort of like a general category. Um, An exhibit on the Day of the Dead, again, pandering to the very large Hispanic community that is in both Houston and larger Texas and in California. The History of Embalming, 19th Century Mourning, Presidential Funerals, Reflections on the Wall, obviously meaning the Vietnam Memorial, Coffins and Caskets of the Past, Historical Hearses, Fantasy, Coffins from Ghana, Japanese Funerals, 9-11 and the Fallen Heroes Tribute, Never Forget, This is a Republican Stronghold, Um, there's lots of red, white, and blue, and some of the worst design t-shirts I've ever seen at this museum. Marcellus Casket Company, a specific, you know, dedication just to that casket company, and then lastly, Jazz Funerals of New Orleans, but perhaps the best, and again, where I say that they are definitely pandering to a particular community... In 2005, they collaborated with the Vatican on a permanent exhibit called Celebrating the Life and Deaths of the Popes. How a man who is definitely a waspy Christian from Texas was able to convince the Vatican to send artifacts to his museum in Houston, I will never know. But man, would I like to have been a fly on the wall for that conversation. So you can still go visit it today. I have never been. I did view their gift shop online, which is why I feel pretty safe in saying that they are some of the ugliest t-shirts I've ever seen. Their motto is, every day above ground is a good one. Alive at any cost, apparently. So, this brings us to the 1990s, which is when things start to be not great for SCI in a number of ways. First of all, they come under heavy scrutiny as part of the American Way of Death Revisited, which is published in 1998, posthumously following Jessica Mitford's death two years earlier. She certainly had already been reporting on the SEI issue for years at that point, and she was not the only one. But things really explode in 1999, or I should say late 98, early 99, with what... (laughs) only in America, becomes known as either Funeralgate or Formaldegate. 
I kind of like formaligate personally, but I'm not a journalist, so I can't really speak to it. So this is the controversy that erupts first over the fact that SCI is using unlicensed embalmers in Texas. And man, if you read some of the accounts of this, it's horrific. Essentially, these embalmers are doing things very badly, mainly over embalming bodies. So they are leaking like bloody embalming fluid. It's bad. The uh, accounts of a small child who sees his older brother over embalmed and leaking fluid is, is pretty terrible. But as a result, what happens is that the Texas Funeral Commission um, start to do an investigation of SCI and their use of unlicensed embalmers. Keep in mind, again, with this clustering, like they know that these embalmers are at a central location. So it's not like they can even target one funeral home because everybody's being sent to this central processing facility. And it's bad. So bad so that the state will eventually fine SCI for the tune of $445,000 for this mishap. Now, leading the charge in this is a woman named Eliza May, who was at the time in charge for the TFSC. You can understand that Robert Waltrip was not happy about this. In fact, he considered that he's doing a great service for the public, that this was a personal attack on him, that they did not need to be going after him. And he wrote a letter to this effect to then-Governor of Texas, George W. Bush. Now, it is worth noting, George W. Bush is a personal friend of Robert L. Waltrip. Waltrip had contributed somewhere to the tune of $45,000 between the gubernatorial and presidential campaign of Bush He personally donated $100,000 to the Bush Library and something to the tune of $70,000 just to have Bush speak in an event as sort of an honorary donation. So needless to say, you're looking at well over a quarter of a million dollars worth of donated money from SCI. This doesn't even count the PACs that SCI also controls. They are a huge political force not just in Texas, but across the country. He also frequently let Bush use his private jet. Like, they were buddies. So he writes a letter to Bush complaining about all of this dust-up with Eliza May. And then on tax day 1998, so April 15th, he actually goes to visit Bush at the governor's office in Austin. Now, later accounts say that they did not discuss the issue. It was just a pleasant, hi, how you doing? Good to see you. Happened to be in town. And that is eventually why when Bush is subpoenaed later in a wrongful termination suit, he will not have to testify. So Eliza May, the day following this, is contacted by Representative Kyle Janik, who is a Republican from Houston and a stockholder in SCI. He called May to complain about her attack on SCI. Within the following week, four more senators who received campaign contributions from SCI's PAC also called her to complain. Within a month, she was called to the office of Senator John Whitmire, who is actually a Democrat from Houston. He received more campaign money from SCI than any other Senate member. So all of the movers and shakers are suddenly, there's like a concerted effort against her. And within 10 months, she is fired from her position as the head of the TFSC, files a wrongful termination suit. This is where they try to subpoena Bush to say like, you know, did he put a bug in your ear? Did he tell you to have all of these people go after her? They claim that Bush did not have specific knowledge just because he had received a letter. You know, he gets thousands of letters. He doesn't read all of them. So Bush never actually had to speak. Eventually, the suit was settled for roughly $200,000, and it was paid jointly by the state because obviously she was a state employee and SCI. This, however, is not the end of SCI's legal problems. Now, that's not to say that they were lily clean before this, but in the early 2000s, this is when scrutiny really starts to click in because of a couple of major controversies. Now, most certainly the biggest one of these is 
In 2001, Memorial Gardens in Fort Lauderdale, which is a primarily Jewish cemetery, was oversold. They discovered the bodies were A, in incorrect locations, B, in many cases had either been exhumed or desecrated, dumped in the woods where wild pigs were eating them. Really, really bad. Graphic photos, like you probably saw this on the news because this was major, major news at the time. This is going to be the start of scrutiny into SCI's companies because it's going to start a landslide where it sees that despite this whole concept of clustering, there are a lot of cracks in SCI's management plan that their independent contractors maybe are not living up to their quote-unquote high standards. And it also indicates that they are putting the majority of their money into new properties that are going to continue to pay out. The older properties, I don't want to say they could care less about, but they are putting minimal effort into. They reach a $14 million agreement with the Attorney General of the state of Florida and eventually pay out roughly $100 million to 350 families. Also in 2003, at J.S. Waitman and Sons, they supposedly wrongfully cremated a stillborn baby. Supposedly what happened was that the baby was accidentally placed on a gurney with a woman who was supposed to be cremated. They wheeled away the gurney and both of them were cremated, which leads me to believe that there was a lot of negligence. You didn't even look to make sure um, why was that happening. Um, It took two years for this to come out. Um, This was, I believe, in Massachusetts. It's either Massachusetts or Chicago. I can't remember. Either way, um, caused emotional distress to the family, as you can imagine. So they ended up paying a $325,000 settlement in that case. 2007, another instance with an improperly um, disposed of remains of a stillborn. In this case, um, this happened in the D.C. metro area where... The baby was buried in a grave that was only eight inches deep. Um, anybody that's ever buried a pet in their yard knows that eight inches is not going to do much. Again, caused emotional distress to the family. Um, and in this case, there was another wrongful termination accusation that there was an employee who talked to the press. There is a lot <laughs> that Robert Waltrip has to say to his employees about talking to the press. He is not a fan of it. Definitely always ask them to consider the reputation of the company. And this is one of the reasons it's hard to find information about SCI. Um, The majority of people you talk to about SCI are people who are displeased because all of that profit that the company is making often does not get passed on to the employees. The employees are not paid any better than they would be if they were working in an independent field home that has small, much smaller profit margins. So uh, I don't know how happy most of those employees are. And I talked about this a little bit last week when I talked about like the sales positions that are often not salaried and things like that. And they use fewer employees to do the same amount of work and things like that. So there's a lot of issues. In 2009, the National Funeral Home in Falls Church, Virginia, um, which was one of those centralized clustering facilities for the whole D.C. metro area for SCI, It was revealed in the Washington Post that they were storing as many as 200 bodies naked and in various states of decomposition, unrefrigerated on their premises, many of them like stacked on gurneys and garages, which I think that at the time was even more shocking. Having just gone through a pandemic and certainly having heard stories of refrigerated trucks parked in parking lots, you know that preservation is a big issue. Um, This was particularly picked up by the press because a lot of these were soldiers slated for burial at places like Arlington, and they're laying naked under sheets in an unrefrigerated garage in the middle of the summer. So again, you have like lawsuit after lawsuit piling up in 2010. Um, The Stanetsky Chapel, which is in Boston, buried a woman in the wrong grave. And then when they realized their mistake, they didn't pull a permit and they just disinterred her and moved her without telling the family. In this case, um, the state pushed in. That's the problem with a lot of funeral laws is that often the family doesn't have resources. I was going to say recourse. The family doesn't have recourse. Also not resources sometimes. 
they can't always directly sue SCI. So often they have to leave it up to the state to use their own laws. And so in this case, the state of Massachusetts did levy a fine of $18,000 against SCI, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it's the largest in state history. Unfortunately, because of the way that cemeteries are treated, cemeteries more so than funeral homes, there's often not a lot that you can do because you know they are not for profit and everything. And I talked about this last week with Mitford's chapter on them, um, God's Little Million Dollar Acre. That's why there are so many problems with cemeteries. And that's because they are often protected by archaic laws that don't hold them to the same standards. And then, you know, another case, September of 2009, Eden Memorial Park in Mission Hills, California, was destroying graves to make way for new interments. In this case, 800 families filed a class action lawsuit, um, which was settled in 2014 for $80 million. So this is a company that's pulling more than a billion dollars a year in profits, but all of these lawsuits do start to add up. As recently as 2013, Bloomberg Businessweek found that they charge roughly 42% more than independents did for the exact same funeral services. As I already said, these savings are not being passed along to their employees. Also, because of federal trade regulations, so say they have bought up 20 funeral homes in a metro area, they are looking to acquire new, what they think might be more profitable properties. Then they have to sell them in order to make the deal. So which ones do you think they're going to sell? They're going to sell the ones that are no longer profitable. So cemeteries that are full, aging funeral homes and things like that. So then they have to dump all this property. How many of those do you think survive after SCI is done with them? How many of those funeral homes do you think remain viable? How many of those cemeteries do you think eventually end up in disrepair and abandoned because they no longer have a perpetual care fund to take care of them? And like I said, I would love to see more research done on these properties that get unloaded. Now, maybe they are picked up by some of the other large cemetery groups, which I didn't even go into those. I focused entirely on SCI this week. But it brings up a whole host of other questions. Robert Waltrip is 91. He announced his retirement in 2015. So for the last five years, he has been out of the direct running of things. But something tells me he still probably has a strong say in things. SCI still is putting massive contributions out there on the table for both Democrats and Republicans alike. They are part of a major political system. And it's very interesting to me because certainly we live in an age of cancel culture and scrutiny where a lot of people are thinking very seriously about where they put their money. And this is something that you have to kind of think about. How often do you think about the fact that in choosing a funeral home, you are in many ways supporting campaign contributions? Do people know that they have options in terms of more affordable care? Do you know your rights when you legally go into a funeral home? It's one of those things that I find very distressing. And I know that this is a cemetery podcast, but if you are interested in cemeteries and if you are interested in how cemeteries become abandoned and how cemeteries are no longer cared for, how cemeteries become destroyed and have criminal activities, you have to put scrutiny on companies like this. You have to see what they are doing. You have to see how their sales tactics hurt other cemeteries. It's an important thing to talk about. And also, you have to put scrutiny on these companies in the fact that they are part of the problem when it comes to neglect and not keeping up cemeteries because they are far less interested when they are no longer making money off of them. Lots of things to talk about. As always, if you are enjoying the podcast, please, please leave a rating or review. I don't know if you've noticed, but Apple Podcasts has updated things, and with their new algorithm, most people's scores actually dropped because the way that they calculated them changed. So a five-star review would be really appreciated at this point. I am now to 4.9. I know it's so distressing, but uh, if you are enjoying it, it just takes a minute to log in, and it really does make a difference in how visible I am. Follow along on social media. 
Tomb of the View podcast on both Facebook and Instagram for lots of fun extra stuff. I'm going to actually share some stuff this week, I promise. Any other questions, concerns, likewise, feel free to reach out to the podcast at gmail.com. Also, just a little plug, it is the Association for Gravestone Studies Conference this week. It does start today, the 18th, the day that this will drop. Um, if you have not already registered, um, if you register as a student, it's only $25. So if you still have your student ID, I would recommend doing that. Um, but you didn't hear it from me. But if you are interested in this type of thing and if you want to see it, it's all going to be virtual this year. It is running for the next week. I think that they are planning to release some of the papers afterwards. So if you want to save your money for now and maybe check it out later, that probably will be an option at some point in the future. But for now, I'm Liz Clappin and this is Tomb of the View.